0: Welcome, everyone, to our Every Other Thursday podcast where we cover the wide world of food service and hospitality. Our hosts cover both the relevant news of the moment and we invite key industry experts in for conversations that are informative, enlightening, and entertaining. Every Other Thursday is an approximately 40 to 50 minute conversation presented bi weekly by Tabletop Journal. Now, here's your host of Every Other Thursday, Dave Turner.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Every Other Thursday. I'm Dave Turner. I'm your host here at Every Other Thursday, and I'm here, as usual, with my friends and colleagues, Greg Kirsch and Jay Alley. Hey, guys, how are you doing? Excellent
2: fine.
1: How are you? I'm great. I am great. This is episode, by the way, n- number 23. Can you believe it? Of every other Thursday. Time flies by fast. Amazing. 46 weeks worth of this stuff. So that's great. Today, I want to get right to it. I want to uh, jump into this. I want to do the get our business out of the way and jump into it because we've got another exciting guest. We've got Raina Zingraba. And I know I'm not saying it right. I'm never going to say his name right. And he's always going to ding me on it, but he's such a great guy. He lets me get away with it. So I appreciate that. Everybody in our industry knows Reiner. Reiner spent uh, several decades, uh, three decades plus with Marriott and was responsible for their luxury dining F&B and the culinary decisions in their luxury uh, properties. So Reiner Zingrava is a a great guest and we're very thrilled to have him on here. It's our honor to have him on, but he's doing something different and something uh, he's taken a a new path now, and it's very new, and we want to hear all about his newest venture. So we're going to bring Reiner on in just one second, but we want to get the business stuff out of the way here, and as most of you realize now, every other Thursday is brought to you by Tabletop Journal, where we celebrate the products, the people, the places, all in the world of hospitality tabletop. And with all of that, I want to give a great big every other Thursday welcome to Reiner Zingrabah. And everybody, I want to give a big every other Thursday welcome to Rainer Zingrava. Am I saying that right again, Rainer?
3: Absolutely not.
1: <laughs> Absolutely not. Good. I never get that right. Why would we start now? But it's great having you on the, show, on the on the podcast here with us today. We've just gone through our intro. You didn't hear it probably, but we've we've given a brief introduction of, about who you are and why you're here. But tell us if you can tell our listeners a little bit more. Give them a snapshot about who you are, what your background is, and most importantly, what your new venture is. Absolutely. I.
3: You know, so I don't know how much time we have. Is this an hour enough for this intro? No,
1: uh, as long as you like. Yeah,
3: it's been 40 years. I tried to wrap up in two sentences. That's really
1: difficult. No, I did the two sentences. You can talk as long as you like. Oh, that's OK. So 40 years ago, I,
3: as a, as a young 15 and a half year old, I was asked if I wanted to be a cook or not. So my dad said, you have one opportunity here. And I took it. So since then, uh, never looked back, worked in 10 different countries, worked for every luxury hotel company and Mission Star restaurants and stuff like this all over the world. 13 years in the Far East, uh, nine in Mexico, a little bit in Canada, and then the last nine years as a corporate role within the ritz carlton Hotel Company globally, and then subsequently taking on the last three years of role of uh, the corporate role of all married luxury brands, the entire portfolio of eight different brands, including Ritz-Carlton Yard uh, crucial project. And then uh, a couple of weeks and months ago with COVID and furlough, really the time that everybody had was the same to me and allowed me to think, what do I want to do next or with the rest of my career the junction and, and age of life I'm at, this is probably the last chance I get to try something on my own. While having a company pay for it, right? So <laughs> since the company was willing and happy to offer an early retirement package to the people that were interested, I probably was first in line and said, Yeah, I'll take that. And and allows me to you know, venture on my own for a while and try it out. And the reality is that the four months of furlough have been beneficial because everything that was in my head that I wanted to do anyway in the last, uh, in the next 18 to 24 months, I had time to actually stop and think and put it on paper and then translate that paper to a website and and talk to people and get feedback and import and stuff like this. So out of which crystallized, What you can see today on the website. Uh, It's been live for four weeks, and I am happy to say that things are moving in the right direction. Uh, Four contract time, and in every segment of the offering, completed my first job last week and uh the client was happy with what we provided and and that's it right and, and i think the industry we're going to talk about the industry a little bit later but i think the industry is going through a difficult time as we all know but certain things of the industry will always require help right and progress and process does not stop because of a, a pandemic and it might be delayed but it doesn't stop
1: yeah, yeah I, I think you're right. And, and and for today's podcast, we want to start with talking a little bit about the industry. And then in the back half of the podcast, we want to talk about the, the new business, the new uh, adventure that you've just been on for the last 30 days. And it's great to hear that you're off to a great start with that. But Rainer, real quick, uh, if you can, this COVID thing has turned the business, uh, our entire industry, travel, tourism, hotels, uh, hospitality in general, turned it upside down. Wh- where does food and beverage and hotels go from here? Uh,
3: it's going, ex- or it should be going, exactly the same way it was starting to go before COVID, meaning the approach to food and beverage needs to Continue to evolve into an independent mindset and to be locally relevant in the local food and beverage scene, competing with local independent restaurants. And we created a motto for our brands that we looked after, and in particular, it's Carlton Brand, which was called 80% Local. It meant for us that we put everything through a filter of 80% Local from supply chain to guests that were looking for offering of wine and stuff like this and telling a story to the local guests that made it attractive to the local guests to come to our restaurants rather than focusing on hotel guests. Because the hotel guest will eventually go and ask the concierge, where is a good restaurant? And the answer should always be here. This is the best choice. This is the best restaurant, best bar. And when a place is busy and hopping, there's an automatic draw, right? And the hotel guests don't even need to wander outside the hotel to go somewhere else. Obviously, that implies that you have to make sure that your pricing strategy is right, that your offering is right, that you sell a story right, uh, and that you tell the story not just through a menu. Like in the old days, sometimes the GM said, change the concept means change the menu. Well, that's no longer enough, right? It's a experiential uh, this experience at every level from the menu to the interior design to the glassware to the flatware to the plateware to the linen to the uniform to the story the layers of the story that, in, uh, that are in there right so all of that is important and I think a good restaurant obviously needs to be business savvy and unfortunately in hotels often numbers are masked because they are hidden under a larger Hotel number, they're not broken out as, as, as they should be. And what we have tried to do over the last five years is to create, and unfortunately the hotel systems don't allow for this, we so have to do this manually, manually, but we we created independent restaurant p and to really understand if we actually make money here or not, right? If all our decisions and things that we're talking about, 80% local, all that stuff, actually yield results, financial results.
4: May I just ask real quick, would the would hotel management mind if the margins were lower or even a loss, because the the uh, restaurant brings people into the hotel, or is that not is that not valid?
3: It is valid to a point, and I think the more important question is there has been this elusive idea that a successful restaurant actually drives room rate, and nobody has ever been able to show that on a matrix or on a chart that that is actually true. It's a gut feeling all the FMB and b folks have, but nobody ever, ever, ever has been able to correlate that information. And we have been able to correlate that over the last seven years into a chart that clearly shows an ADR improvement of anywhere from 20 to $35 because we had a successful hopping restaurant. Now, to your question, do restaurants sometimes are looked at as profit centers? Most of the time today, owners would like to look at the restaurant as a profit center and not make a loss. However, there are some circumstances in some locations where the owner might be willing to say, I'm okay with a break or I'm okay with a little loss, because I do have to offer something rather than offering nothing, right? But now we can actually correlate and say that if you are breaking even, you still make $35 on an ADR, Mm -hmm. additionally to what you made before. That number, obviously in a hotel context of a 300 room hotel with a 75 or 80% occupancy, correlates to millions of dollars right so but before we could never talk about this. so we we never had that ability to say hold on you you might be making only break even Mm -hmm. but we actually you're actually making three million dollars extra in profit because the adi is straight gravy right and that correlation has never been there now we've actually been able to correlate it and we can say to owners and say guys okay let's make sure this is hopping to the successful business where people go because
1: people do choose their hotel stay based on they often be offering more and more and more, right? Does it also translate runner, to banqueting, business meetings, and maybe even off-site catering?
3: Of course it does. Of course it does. I mean, we, we've not been able to correlate that in a chart, but 100% in my last property venture, which was in Toronto, where I was the AMF&B and culinary director, I saw very clearly that the office catering next to us was an incredibly valuable piece of business to us. And because of our restaurant offerings and because of what we were doing in hotel, there was a lot of take on the office catering piece, right? So I think it's a question of then building those relationships with the admin assistants and the people that make the decisions are typically the admin assistants, right? Funny enough, because the, the COO, the CEO, whoever, goes to the his or her admin assistant and says, hey, can you book me a quick meeting for 30 people? And if there's a relationship between your hotel and that office in in form of the admin assistant or anybody else that you've built a relationship with, you get with us you're going to get that little 30-people lunch business, quick meeting, all that stuff. And then eventually, of course, that translates into anniversary parties, into celebration parties, into uh, you know all that other fun stuff, in a, in a city hotel, right? Resort hotels are obviously a little bit different in that particular aspect.
2: Can I ask you a question? With all of this crazy stuff going on with, with the COVID thing, if you have a, a fabulous hotel, great food and all of that, And when the dining levels increase for internal dining, I look at it and I go, you listen to people disrupting outdoor dining and, you know, these crazy guys running and gals running around screaming at people. Do you see the indoor dining becoming even more important from a safety factor? And people say, hey, look, we're at the Ritz. We're going to eat at the restaurant. It's awesome. It's inside. We're going to be really safe. No worries. Do you think that that will become a factor?
3: I don't know if that becomes a factor. I think human behavior changes with every time a situation changes, right? And I think we are all trying to read into COVID what this will do for the future and what this behavioral change might be and what of the behavioral changes might be permanent. Right. And I think the reality is that the moment there is a therapeutic drug, vaccine, a combination of all of them, Humans will go back to their usual behavior, right? And people have asked me, "What about buffets?" I said, "You need to. If you built a buffet today, you need to build it for three phases: for COVID, interim COVID, and not COVID, right? Because ultimately, people will go back to. If you have a 500-room hotel in a resort location with a 2.5%, two and a half percent, two two point five guest count per room in high season, you're going to have 1,200 people in your hotel." at top occupancy. They want to have breakfast. And guess what? You can't hire enough cooks to make those eggs,
2: yeah.
3: <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. you don't have kitchens big enough to make those eggs. So eventually, when that business comes back to that level, there will be buffets again. There will be. There's no question in my mind that there will be buffets. Now, will these buffets have slight modifications? Sure no question, right? Until everybody feels 100% safe, until everybody feels 100% back to normal, whatever that normal is, there will be a return to what we would call normality pre-COVID, right? But will guests prefer outdoor... You know, the reality is in in four-season regions, like New York, Washington, etc., you can extend potentially your outdoor seating for another month or so, weeks or so. By you know some temporary enclosures by heating elements by whatever right the challenge will be what does indoor dining look like from a legislator perspective are we going to be confined to 50% seating capacity? Are we confined to, you know, in some places on the planet, that still have 25% capacity restrictions, right? Or are we slowly saying, okay, maybe there is a way to do this a little bit smarter. We do some partitions, we do some UV light filter entrances, we do some, all these other little different pieces in the interim until we have a, a, let's call it a cure or a vaccine or whatever you want to call it. And then at least go back to a, a 75% occupancy, right? But I also think that restaurateurs who are smart have already figured this out. The, the ones that are sharp, the ones that are able to pivot on a dime, so to speak, and, and understand this business, and react and don't die in their own sorrow, uh, and are good business people, they've already figured this out, right? They added another seating, they're restricted it to two-hour seatings, they've, they've extended, they're back to 75, 90, 100% occupancy in the restaurant, because they they figured out other ways to get there, right? Some of them are able to take over additional space in another location next door, underneath, above. There might be a rooftop available that nobody ever thought of using, right? And hey, okay, we have a rooftop now, cool. And and what the beauty about all of this is also at the same time that the landlords have become more flexible, right? Before, if you asked if you wanted to put a table and a chair in a car park, they would have told you to take a hike, right? (laughs) And now we're seeing this everywhere, right? That cities have become more flexible, the closure of roads, the the pedestrianization of certain streets. I think everybody is in this together. And I think the positive of all of this is that there is actually a lot of flexibility in, to be fair, every county is in America, right? In particular in America, let's Let's just talk about America for a second. Uh, outside of the Americas, it's still a very different different story. And it's very different from country to country. But in America, I think you have a lot of different counties with a lot of different approaches. And uh, some counties are leading the way in, in how to be flexible, how to get stuff, help the industry, how to help the restaurateurs, the hotels. And I think that would actually be a positive out of the, all of this in the end is that the legislature and the administration understands our business better or has a better feeling or understanding of the business and more sympathy to the business
1: right it seems like we've gone through a variety of phases and i, I think restaurants definitely seem to be at way ahead of the hotel end of the business the, the rooms end of the of the, yeah, the room's of, end of- is a
3: difficult part
1: right that has, to me, longer-term implications because you see people learning to work from home. Yeah. Companies that, take take New York City, for instance, companies that may have had 10 or 15 floors of a, of a building filled with office space and people working in that building, they've discovered they don't need Ten or fifteen floors of building of people there, they can get away with three floors of building. So you're going to have just eventually when they do come back, they're not going to come back in the same numbers. And I think it was the Time Life Building, New York uh, Times put a story out that they have uh, that building now, uh, whatever it's called now, had something like eighty-five hundred people working in it on any given day, and now they've got four or five hundred people working in it. And they never really, for the long term anyway, expect people to go back to those eighty. 500 level. So you're going to have hotels struggle for a while.
3: I think you're absolutely right. I think the the inner city REIT market is going to be the largest portion of of things being affected, right? I think the real estate market in inner city that, that plays on office space is going to be affected. However, there is also a potential and possibility that a lot of these buildings turn into apartments. Yeah. And remember, we do have a, and this is a fascinating fact, is that real estate prices, even during COVID, are rising. Right, Real estate prices across the board are rising by anywhere, depending on where you are in the world, between 3 and 5% annually, and still continue to do so. Because there is a shortage of real estate for the population that exists and now people are working from home obviously that means that the suburban the call for suburban homes has increased dramatically and therefore the suburban market has increased dramatically on the on a place on a uh, sales scale but eventually people do want to i think the younger generation does want the offering of restaurants and cinemas and, and everything at their doorstep where they can walk to and take the subway to etc so so maybe some of the and this is all we all can look in a crystal ball and try to anticipate this but but I think the reIT market is a challenge. I think the business travel market that all these hotels are in that you just mentioned, like Washington DC New York City, etc will take a hiatus for sure uh, and it will because a lot of these hotels are not only business hotels but they also are group business hotels that group business is the one segment that will suffer the longest in all of all of the segments right that 300 people 500 people 800 people 1000 people convention to go and meet in a room and and hang out together and have a meeting together that confidence of of the companies to put on those events is going to going to take a vaccine and a therapeutic drug and time to fix and heal and change right so, but at the same time, the world as we're all seeing doesn't stop, right? And there still will be business travel. There still will be business meetings. There still will be in-person requirements to meet in person. This is all lovely and wonderful on Zoom. But and instead of maybe four meetings, maybe one is enough, right, in person. But there still will be in-person meetings. And I think that behavior will also go back to somewhat of a normality down the road. But, but the one segment, unfortunately, is the largest revenue generator is the group business, right? And the largest profit generator is the group business. So this is where hotel companies are going to be struggling to compensate. And companies like any any larger you know, the resort, luxury resort business in drive in locations in the United States is already over 65% occupancy again.
1: Yeah, I think the restaurant business has a lot of things starting to go <clears throat> for it. I mean, you, you have the underlying, what you were talking about, Reiner, before, is that the underlying concept that people are all hardwired to connect in person. Right. Food and beverage is a great driver for that. That's never going to change. No. Secondly, you have prices in supermarkets. People have saved money and they've understood they've been in supermarkets, but those prices are rising too. Yeah. So you now have pricing parity or closer to it and, uh, with people dining out. And I, I think there's a lot of things that say that the restaurants, when they come back, I always say that there were <laughs> before COVID, there were a lot of bad restaurants that made a living out of nothing, just being in the right spot. There were a lot of bad businesses.
3: Bad business, there you go. Not necessarily bad restaurants, but bad business people. And to survive and think you're doing well at 2% profit, I mean, guess what? Yep. If you live off alone, guess what? Not going to gonna be a good, smart business. Now, a lot unfortunately, in our industry, there's a lot of idealists that are great cooks, bartenders, whatever. But the fundamentals of business have not been understood by some of these people right? And a lot of decisions are made. And I see, I've seen this throughout my career, right? You talk to chefs in hotels. The first thing they say, yeah, but I need five more cooks. I said, well, why? Well, because I need them. Well, hold on. Let's put this on paper and show me where the shifts that you need to fill are missing the bodies that you're asking for. Oh, no, no, no. I just need five more people. I said, no, no, let's just put it on paper Show me a shift schedule, show me your stations, show me your operating hours, show me your covers that you're doing, and then put it on paper, and then show me where the gaps are, and then we look how many people you actually need. And typically, what you find is when you do that exercise, that there might, there might need a person extra, there might need two person extra, but I certainly don't need the five. And then you can go and take that information and go to your upper management and say, Here's the reason why I need these people. Here is the business case for this uh, for this scenario, why I need two more people. And they can't argue back with you because you have your facts, right? And, and a lot of businesses have operated the same way on gut feeling. They say, okay, I, I want to cook this. Well, that's nice that you want to cook it, but do you actually sell this? Right? You actually make a profit on cooking this. Or are you just cooking it because you like to cook the dish? I I mean, that's a very simplified version of of the problem, but but that's really what it is. And those restaurants, fortunately or unfortunately, have gone under or will go under,
4: right? Hence, even pre-COVID, restaurants were the biggest or at least one of the the top failure rates in America because somebody says... I like to cook or you're a good cook. You ought to be, you ought to open a restaurant. Yeah, obviously there's a lot more to it than that. There's
3: just a little bit more to it than that. Yeah. yeah a little bit. And then sometimes we, we as chefs or as, as industry professionals, we're, we have a dream, we have a vision, we have whatever, right? And, and and then sometimes we don't talk to business leaders. We actually don't get the feedback from the business leader. And I, I have a great example, a friend of mine, in the process of selling his company and he had all these ideas about expansion and dealing with retail and dealing with wholesale and, and all this fun stuff and then the business people came in that he wants to sell to and i said that's all fine your ideas are all fine but let's look at numbers and then okay in this area here is where you are known for this is what you're good at this is where you make the most money so that's the fastest horse we have let's bet on that fastest horse first And when we make money with that fastest horse as much as we can, then we look at the other ideas that you have. But him being a true F&B professional, he wants to do everything at the same time, right? And that's where the value of talking to true business leaders comes in that have zero attachment to the emotions, right? And unfortunately, in food and beverage, there's a lot of stuff that's emotional.
2: So you know you know what you've just done to an idea that David and I and Greg had. <laughs> we were going to open up a chain of bone marrow restaurants. And now that <laughs> I just see that may not work.
1: <laughs> that was gonna be our bone marrow empire. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna corner of the bone marrow market.
3: Talk to the Surgeon General first
2: and get the approval that it is healthy. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: yeah, we even had the name of the restaurant. We're just gonna call it bones. I don't know. It sounded good.
4: <laughs> I think that bone marrow might be the uh, vaccine
1: for COVID. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, let's do this. Let's take a break. We're here with Ryan and Zingraber. We're talking about a little bit about the industry right now. And when we come back from the break, Ryan, I want to talk about uh, the new venture, the HKB Designs venture that you're on. Absolutely. That sounds like a, a lot of fun. And I, I think what we've been just talking about in the lead up to the break, we a great segue into it. So when we come back, more with Ryan and Right back at you.
0: This episode of Every Other Thursday is brought to you by TabletopJournal.com. For more than nine years now, Tabletop Journal has been covering the food service and hospitality industry, all the while raising the awareness of just how important Tabletop is to the overall guest dining experience. If you haven't signed up for Tabletop Journal's bi-monthly newsletter, it's simple and easy, and it's free. Simply go to TabletopJournalNewsletter.com. Now, back to our podcast.
1: Welcome back, everybody, and we're here with Reiner Zingraba, and we're talking food and beverage and hotel industry. And now we want to move over, segue into Reiner. You've got a brand new venture. That's uh, this baby is only a month old, but it's already off to a great start. Why don't you tell us a little bit about HKB Designs and what it is and what you're trying to do, and tell us a little bit about it. And by the way, who are you doing it with? Oh, absolutely. So HKB comes from Hotel Kitchen and Bar Designs
3: because I I looked at the internet before launching this venture and tried to find commercial kitchen consultants by Googling them, and I couldn't find them. So (laughs) I decided, let's call it Hotel Kitchen and Bar Designs, right, so that you can actually find somebody. So that's how the name came about. And the service offering that we are offering is really a cross-section of different things. And when I had the opportunity during COVID to sit down and think, where can i offer my expertise and why am i different to anybody else that is out there in my expertise and where are needs in the industry that i have been unfortunately dealing with over the past nine years that i could never find a resolution for and what could i do about that right so On my website, if you go to my website, hkb-designs.com, you can see that I'm offering a variety of different services and expertises, right? So the first one is I partnered up with the best kitchen designer that I've had the pleasure of working with the last 15 years, who is an extreme detail-oriented kitchen designer that has a design firm that has all the technical abilities and stuff like this. And I decided that nobody in the kitchen design space has the culinary expertise or the restaurant understanding expertise. They're all great te- technical people that know how to make an AutoCAD and how to make a Revit drawing and how to make a rendering, but they, they don't have operational experience. right? So I, I said, well, because over the last nine years, I've reviewed so many kitchen drawings, hundreds and thousands of kitchen drawings, where I had to help the kitchen designers, the commercial consultants with getting to the right end result. And they just don't have that expertise. So I said, well, what if we couple my expertise with a kitchen designer? And before we present anything to a company, an owner, whoever is requesting this service, we can actually speak to the why and why it's important to do it that way and and what does it do operationally? And we understand efficiencies and we understand labor market and labor cost models. And we design for that and keeping that in mind while being able to execute against the vision slash concept of the restaurant or banquet space or whatever it might be, right? So I think that the, the uniqueness in our offering in that area is that the operational expertise is in addition to the commercial expertise that you get when you, when you hire HKB Designs, right? And particularly on the, on the labor front, you know we have high cost labor markets. San Francisco, New York, just to name a few, where, where there's large union contracts in place that, that impede the labor costs even further we have to be smarter, we have to be more efficient in our build out. And I decided I don't want to be a supplier either. I don't want to be recognized as the guy who works only with Garland or only with Vulcan kitchen equipment or with whatever, right? Because it's not about being a supplier. If you are, want to be efficient, you have to build the right stuff with the right equipment for that particular location. So that's something that nobody else offers. So, I'm happy that we can offer that service. And we already have three clients that have taken us on. And the feedback so far has been finally somebody who knows what they're talking about. Right? Yeah, that's great. That's one segment. The other segment that we're partnering with a, a lovely lady out of Richmond is concept design. And, you know, we, over the last five years, we have done all our concepts in house at the Merit Luxury brand portfolio. And I think I understand extremely well what concepts are required once I've visited the market, when I understand the market, when, I, when I've when i seen what's down the road, when I've done my market analysis and stuff like this, we can translate this into a concept deck that allows you to have a restaurant idea of a vision of a restaurant or a framework of a restaurant that will be financially successful as long as it is executed in all the facets of what the idea was, right? So the interaction between interior design and the idea of the concept becomes crucial. So unfortunately, still there's a lot of hotel owners out there that, that like to the interior design to come first because they like the shiny box and and they like the interior design piece. (laughs) And then they have to figure out later what the concept is. And to them, the concept is the menu, what they serve in the shiny box. But in the real world, uh, it should be the other way around. You should have the idea of what you're trying to be and what your business goals are first. And then you build to that and design to that, right? Because that will probably... Increase your chances of a financial successful venture by tenfold.
4: Ryan, when you went into the new markets and looked around, did you have the same priority list that you looked at to determine the concept? I mean, would it be like, this market demands uh, fast casual versus fine dining, or this, this they want fresh here more than other places? I mean, was there a priority list that you like a like a template you took around the country so
3: yes and no and and here's what i mean by that yes there are certain factors that you need to check the box and check against right demographics comp set what's around you what's the average income in your area right who are you competing against what can be your price point where can you be and that already drives a lot of the Mm decision-making process once you have all this information gathered that already drives a lot of your your process right and leads you eventually once you do some other insights like historical social insight you, you leads you somewhere it does lead you somewhere because what you're trying to build with a strong content is a great story And a great story, and in some hotels, it's almost like a play of different stories that play together, right? And you find the characters, and each restaurant becomes a character in your story. So a great restaurant is a story and full of characters. And a great hotel that has many restaurants has a great story overall with many characters being defined in the restaurant. And it is driven truly by research. If you don't do your research and you do it by gut or because of what the owner likes, it will lead you the wrong path. Nine out of 10 times it will lead you on the wrong path. And again, we go back to the same thing. What is your goal? Is your goal to have a three Michelin star restaurant no matter the cost, because you want the prestige and you want the, you know, the owner wants the star on his chest, right? Or is the goal financial success, and that dictates a different approach. Right? So it's always important to understand before you start. What's the
2: goal?
3: Where, where do we want to go?
1: And then you have to put the resources against that, I suppose,
3: too, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's the other service. And then the other service that we are offering is really interesting, and it's a niche that nobody has ever figured out. And I've dealt with it. And as my partner there is Tomaso, and we're we've figured out that. In the last five, 10 years, the hiring timelines of new hotel opening, executive chefs, general managers, food and beverage directors have shrunk. In the old days, a GM was hired 18 months to 24 months before the hotel opening. Sales and marketing was hired probably 18 months before the hotel opening. And then the chef and the food and beverage were typically hired anywhere from nine to 12 months before the hotel opening. Those chefs and FB directors and general managers then created what we would call the osne list for a hotel right which is the operating supply and equipment list for a hotel that include anything from pots and pans to storage containers to banquet stages all the fun stuff that we all need to operate an open hotel and restaurants with now budgets pre-opening budgets have been cut and cut and cut and cut every hotel company has gone out there and promised the owners to cut those pre-opening expenses to the bare minimum so over the last five years we have seen that the executive chef the gms get hired nine to 12 months before the opening the chefs the FB directors get hired four months five months before the opening sometimes even less and then within those four or five months, they have to do all these tasks of hiring people, writing on all, all this stuff, which is really impossible, right? It, it really really humanly impossible to do so. And in addition to that, they were supposed to then generate an OSNE list, which the reality is most of the ordering needs to be done four, five, six months before the hotel opening in order to guarantee a delivery, right? Because we are we're dealing with hundreds and thousands of items that come from all over the world that need to be collected and chipped into one location. So The logistics behind that is just not physically possible to get that done in less than five, six months, right? So then there's really, again, based on the expertise, nobody out there that can customize a list. So right now, if somebody is forced with that dilemma, I just explained, they will probably go to a large supplier or a single large supplier of China Glass and Silver and I don't want to mention names, but that I would then say to them, hey, can you help me put put a list together here? Right? And that supplier will put a list together for for that hotel, which limits you to that one supplier, number one. And number two, the suppliers are also not always the smartest, and you end up with 5,000 fairy glasses in in an order that you really don't need, right? Because it's from some old list, also generated from some old list from somewhere, right? (laughs) And then the, the kitchen pots, pans, ladles, whisks, all that fun stuff is needed also. And it's based on room count formula. Well, hold on. A kitchen, depending on the layout of the building, you might have five individual little kitchens, or you have very large kitchen. And based on what you're cooking, you might need some more small pots or, and more large. You know, so your equipment is gas, or it's electric, or it's induction. So that might require some changes, right? So well, nobody able to customize this, right? And in banquets, very similar. So what we are able to do with the expertise of Tommaso and with my expertise on the kitchen side of things, the banquet side of things, and also understanding the concept and how to bring a concept to life with tableware, we can now custom make, as long as we have the kitchen drawings, concept decks and the layouts of banquets with the rendering for interior design purposes to understand what the color schemes are and stuff like this, we can now customize a list to your project that will not have 5,000 cherry glasses in it.
2: (laughs) You're paired up with the perfect partner. Just to tell you a quick story, because Tommaso grew and stuff, and he got his new warehouse down in Florida and all that stuff. And like I say, I've known him for a long time. So I went down to work with him. He said, oh, it's really great. He said, I got a bunch of new projects, good, exciting calls, one small hotel, boutique, this, that, and the other. So we're getting ready to go. And I go, where are all the samples? He goes, we don't need them for this. I go, really? He goes, yeah, we're just going to go listen. So what he does, which is obviously why it's so important to what you're doing, we go to this, the one little boutique hotel down in Miami. It's really a lovely property. And basically went in, looked at the property then sat down with the people and said, tell me your story. Tell me what you're trying to achieve. Not come in with like a million things in catalogs. Tell me what you want samples of. And that's the way he's always worked. And that's why he's always been such a favorite of Stolzels because he goes in and finds out the best product that he can show you once he knows what you're trying to do for the application that you're trying to use it for. You can't use twenty-five-dollar wine glasses if you're going to have a, you know, wine by the glass, and your average price is going to be, you know, all that fun stuff. Thanks. But that, that's the way he works, and it's the perfect formula.
1: One of the things that you mentioned, Reiner, also that I think is is different than historical practice, when you talked about the restaurant piece of a hotel being eighty percent local. Previously, uh, suppliers of all types come in and do some formulatic proposal uh, based upon rooms. That's right. The number of rooms. It, it, those two, you're, you're, you're using apples to try and uh, forecast what you need, maybe in oranges. And if it's a local, 80% local hotel, to use that, that number again that you had from the first ha- segment of this podcast, I think it's totally different thinking. And I love the fact that you're talking about creating great, sexy stories meaning the restaurants themselves in these, in these hotels, because I suspect you've made, when you do that, you're making the sales job to sell the rooms in that hotel a whole lot easier. Of course. It, it is such a great marketing tool to have the hottest, hippest, greatest restaurant. And I also want to uh, swing back through the different segments, whether it be luxury, fast guy, what you see as being where that kind of, you know, where that storytelling is going to go. Is it going to be at a luxury level? Is it going to be at a, you know, what are some of the components to the story, I guess?
3: Let's go back to what we said earlier. The, the What is the right restaurant? Is driven by facts and figures and information that's gathered before, right? So is it fast casual? Is it fine dining? Is it whatever? Whatever it is, right? And every level, at every level, storytelling today to a consumer, for a guest, is key. Because we are all hungry for story, for experiential exposure to a story. Right, food has this ability to be part of a story. Food has the ability to be the social fabric that brings people together at many different levels. And the more story and the more experience there is, the more will the guest appreciate it. As long, of course, the quality is correct, the price value is correct and this price value proposition applies at every level of the segmentation because there is a price value proposition at McDonald's right and there's a price value proposition at Chipotle and there's a it's a different one to McDonald's right absolutely and there's a different price value proposition at Name another large company like Red Lobster, like the Dardanaut restaurants. Mm -hmm. And the same is go for Michelin star restaurants and Eric Repair in New York to go to the upper upscale, right, to the the highest end. Correct. So everybody, that's why it's so crucial to understand who are you trying to attract as being your guest. Once you understand that, then you can build that story for that guest and create that price value proposition for that guest within that story. When we opened, I'll give you an example. We opened the Ritz Carlton Fort Lauderdale Burlock Coast restaurant about five years ago. And when we went down there, we said, okay, well, let's look at this place. It's this luxury, uber luxury hotel with this wonderful ex and Regis hotel that was converted into its Carlton, overbuilt in many respects from an interior design perspective, in the room sizes and all this stuff, with this really super boring cruise ship like three meal all day dining of the old world of restaurants that we used to talk about, right? And then we walked down the street, and we realized that we've got to be very careful here because the stretch, literally, on the left, there was nothing, and on the right, there was, and excuse my French, titties
1: and tacos, right? Yeah, yeah we got it. I mean, we've heard about those places, right, Jay?
2: Uh, I, I think so. The on the bone marrow. Uh-huh.
3: That's right. The large, the large plastic cups with the slushy yep. drink, yep. right? the big neon straws. And we're like, holy cow, how are we going to offer, what are we going to create here that allows for a casual interaction with all levels of society that are the guests at Titties and Tacos, and that are residents in, in a Ritz-Carlton residence that are paying millions and millions of dollars living in, in Fort Lauderdale on the ocean, right? So how do we do this? And really, what we've come up with is a, at, at, at that particular location, it's financially extremely successful and has been for the last five years extremely successful because we took an approach that we need to be everything to everybody. It doesn't mean we have to serve 100,000 dishes. It just means we have to have a price point that allows the $10 guest to come in and the $150 guest to come in. If you want have $10 to spend, we can cater to you. If you have $180 to spend, we can cater to you. And we deliver the product at the highest level possible, no matter what, and the service at the higher level. So while telling a great story of, the Real McCoy and Rum and Rum Running and Burlap and Burlock and Burlocker. And, and so, so we weave that story of the Real McCoy, Scott McCoy, into the restaurant name. We weaved it into the cocktail offering. We weaved it into the presentation pieces where we wrapped takeaway cake in the cake area that you can take away like a coffee sort of Starbucks scenario. We wrap it in burlap, right? And it's a rum cake. Right. So so you tell the story at every level of the experience. That restaurant pre-COVID ended up making eight million dollars top line with about 12% profit.
1: Right. Okay, we're here with Reiner Zingraber. And Reiner, I promised you I'd get you out for your hard stop that you've got coming up. Gentlemen, if you have any other questions for Reiner today, we're going to make sure that we get them back. If you'll come back and join us again uh, so we can continue the conversation. Uh, this has been exciting. Guys, you have any other questions for Reiner today?
4: Well, Reiner, with uh, 90 seconds left, uh, where is fine dining going? Is it going to be here after COVID or is it long gone?
3: Fine dining has been declared dead for the last 40 years. And guess what? Fine dining is still in one shape or form around. And the difference is what it meant before and what it means today. I think fine dining really just means the highest level of ingredient sourcing matched with the highest level of execution. And it today what it doesn't mean anymore is a sterile environment where you have to be educated about it. I think that's the difference of today's real fine dining versus what we knew as fine dining 30 years ago when the sommelier tried to educate you on 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 everything, right? And I think that's the difference. And I think fine dining will never go away. The, the expectation of great food with great ingredients executed at the highest potential level will never go away. The word luxury actually signifies rare and not easy to obtain, right? So... True luxury is true fine dining, rare and easy not easy to obtain, meaning there's a price point to it that that's not affordable to everybody. And and that's okay, right? But there will be people, like if you look at the stock market, there's enough people who made enough money.
2: Amen. Amen. And if they want to eat the best tacos in the world, then they're going to fine dining on those best tacos someplace. Yeah.
3: Hey, you know, we did years ago what we did, you know, in Hong Kong, we were the first company, first Chinese restaurant that served the famous barbecue pork, the, the Chinese barbecue pork, right? And we did it with the pata negra, with the Iberico pork. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep, And I'll tell you what, it took off like a rocket, this thing, right? Yep. And we still same thing. It's just using the right ingredient, the best ingredient possible, and then making sure it's executed perfectly.
1: Reiner, it's been a pleasure having you with you today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We definitely want to have you come back very soon and continue the conversation, but best of luck with your new venture. You want to give us the website again for that? Yeah, it's www.hkb-designs.com. Perfect. Ryan Grabber. everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Have a wonderful day.
0: This episode of Every Other Thursday has been brought to you by tabletopjournal.com. For more than nine years, Tabletop Journal has been covering the global food service and hospitality industry, all the while raising the awareness of just how important Tabletop is to the overall guest dining experience. TabletopJournal.com, where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places, all in the world of hospitality tabletop. You can learn more about Every Other Thursday by visiting our website, everyotherthursdaypodcast.com. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of Every Other Thursday.